Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. Actually, let's just, we'll jump back to verse 18 to kind of get a bit of a running start since it's connected with the previous text that we looked at last week. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. Therefore, He has mercy on whom He wills, and whom He wills, He hardens. You will say to me then, why does He still find fault? For who has resisted His will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to Him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory. I think it is one of the most important responses in the parental arsenal of responses. When you give instruction to your child, and your child responds with, why? Parents, can we say it together? What can we say to that child? Because I said so. Even some of the children said it, right? Okay, yeah. Your parents heard it growing up. You heard it growing up. It is only right that we pass that along to the next generation. Of course, unfortunately, there are some in our world who suggest that you shouldn't do that, so-called experts. I'm grateful for our own resident expert. He's not with us today, but John Roseman has given me great freedom to feel the no obligation to resist my impulse to say, because I said so. It's a viable response. But though, though many today will say that is, that's not helpful. You need to sit down and explain your intentions, your, your reasons for why you are giving set instruction to a child. Now, I will say, there can be a teachable moment, right? It can be helpful at times to explain your reasoning behind something, your, your motivation for giving an instruction, for saying yes to a request or no to a request. So it may be helpful to sit down, you know, with your Dear little child, I know Bo says never to do this, all right, but whenever, you know, whenever you sit down with your child and you want to explain to them the ins and outs of what you're talking about, that can be helpful. But I would argue it is just as teachable a moment. It is just as important in your, your philosophy of parenting, it's just as important for a child to learn that there are times in his or her life when they just have to submit to the authority that is over them, right? Saying, because I said so, is a fine answer. As a parent, I am the God-given authority in the life of my child, and sometimes we just need to learn to submit to that authority. You may think, what does this have to do with Romans 9? 
I think Romans 9, and in particular the verses we just read, is a theological version of God saying, because I said so. To a legit question that we may feel compelled to ask of God, I think these verses represent, in essence, God saying what He said all along, and that is that there are various points, there are various theological realities, there are questions that you may raise, and a valid response is to hear God say, that is the way it is, because I have said that is the way it is. We don't always do well with that, though, do we? Now, as we've noted before, we like all of our theological I's dotted and T's crossed. We like the dots to connect. We, we like things to make sense according to our reason, but the truth is not all of it does. This gets us to what, you know, what we've been doing here in Romans. Romans 9 through 11, the larger purpose is, is Paul giving us this great defense and declaration of the gospel. And, and in the midst of that, he lays out some important principles. And we've been in the second one for some amount of time now. And that is, in looking at what Paul has explained about the gospel, it's important that we trust God's election. It's a hard doctrine for us, but it's an important one. I know we've got all kinds of questions that come with that, and Paul's not unaware of those questions. In fact, he spends nearly all of verse 6 through 29 answering what would be questions Posed to the one who would say, well, the work of salvation is an electing work of God. God chooses those who will be saved. But in that, we, we wonder, is this fair? Is this right? What about human responsibility? What about my own freedom of choice? How do we, how do we understand how these things work? What's interesting is that rather than, again, giving us a philosophical argument that connects all these points, Paul takes us straight to the majestic, profound, and mysterious glory of God. Paul forces us to build what I think is an important theological picture of who God is. Why should we trust in God's work of election? So this is where we have been in these verses. We've already unpacked two of them, so we can go on to the next next slide. We've already looked at As sovereign, God's always elected some and passed over others. History bears this out. The history of Israel, verses 6 through 13, bear this out. And then last week, we looked at number two, letter B. As righteous, God is allowed to show mercy to whoever He wants to show mercy to. In other words, when Paul ends that previous text by saying, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, the natural question is, why is that fair? To which God responds with this answer. Because I said so. I mean, isn't that what what he says? He quotes, Paul quotes God himself. What is the answer to the question? Why is this fair? Why, Why is this the right thing to do? Because God in and of himself can determine his own actions. He can harden who he wants to harden. He can show mercy on who he wants to show mercy. He can be merciful to Moses even though Moses disobeyed. And he can harden Pharaoh so that Pharaoh would be an object of his wrath. This is all grounded in one thing and one thing only. God's own rightness to do what God wants to do. Brought up an important point last week and that is 
God's not accountable to me. I'm not a peer. Oh, I know the Bible does teach that when I get saved, I become a son of God and and I can become a friend of God. But do not confuse those categories as if being a son of God is the same thing as being a son of your parent. I am not a son of God to the same degree that my sons are my sons. This is not the same kind of category here. We're not peers. We're not both human, all right? So, though I am a son of God and I am a friend of God, God owes me no explanation. He's not accountable to me. I, I can't raise my fist at God and demand an explanation for why He does some things and not other things. Or I suppose I can do this. God's just not obligated to give me an answer that I like. Now, what's important here, it's not that God doesn't give an answer. He does. He's going to harden who I want, and I'll have mercy on who I want. Now, now we get into the third principle here. We get into a third question that that Paul is asked. And so letter C, and I think there's a blank to fill in if you want to fill in a blank. As creator... God owes no explanation to His creation. God does not not have to answer. At least God does not have to give the answer that I want Him to give. Now, what Paul's going to say in these next few verses, really through the end of verse 29, it's all based on what he said there in verse 18. That that verse that we started with. So, I'll have mercy on whoever I want to have mercy on. I'll harden whoever I want to harden. So, what's going to be the natural response? Well, the question then there in verse 18, I mean verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Now, I will say that's a good question, right? It's a good question. In other words, the work of salvation is as we have taught all along. If it's the result of God's electing, choosing work, If that is what's going on, and it's not that God saw something in me or saw something in the future of my life He thought was worthy of redemption, if it is only grounded then in God's own choice, and He he requires no other explanation but Himself. God, by the way, is the only being who requires no other justification but Himself. He self-justifies. That is His nature of being God. I know for the logical, reasonable, philosophical folks in here that drives you crazy, There's your thorn in the flesh. I don't know what to tell you. I'm just saying God by nature has to be self-justifying. Because if at any point He submits to another to evaluate His actions, then guess what that makes you? Co-God. Co-God. So that's not an option. So naturally then you'd ask the question, all right, so why does God find fault with me? Why am I responsible for my actions? I mean, if no one can resist His will... Why is it that I would be the object then of His wrath, let's say? Why is it that somebody's hold responsible for their sin? Now, just to go ahead and alleviate some of the tension you may feel, He will deal with this question in regard to human responsibility in chapter 10. But for now, what's Paul going to do? He's going to double down. Really, he's tripling down at this point, all right? He's already said in the previous text to the question that was asked of him, in essence, God's saying, because I said so. He does it again. 
In other words, if at any point, if you thought, man, if Paul were ever going to give me a detailed, outlined explanation of how I am to wrap my mind around God being sovereign and human free will, verse 19 after it is the perfect point. But notice what he does here. He responds... As if he's concerned, our question is impertinent, right? The the response clearly feels like, you know, the question's been asked with a little bit of sass. Like, why am I at fault? That's that's me reading into it. All right, okay, there's nothing in the Greek that suggests that would have been the attitude, but that's kind of how I see it. In other words, it's not really this guy, whoever this guy is who's arguing with Paul, It's not that he's necessarily doing the legit, you know, sincere question. It's more, again, the sassy, snarky kind of question. Well, why is this all my fault then? To which then he responds. This just just gives me such freedom. I don't know if it gives you freedom, maybe just as a pastor, because I get asked this question. This gives me such freedom then to say, just as God did, verse 20, but indeed, O man... Who are you to reply against God? Who do you think you are? Again, it sounds like the question's being asked more like an accusation. Rather than a question, it's more like an accusation. God is somehow being improper. He's being unfair. He's being unjust. Because He works according to election. He has mercy on whoever He wants and hardens whoever He wants. And yet... Those that are hardened are held responsible for their own sin and their own rebellion. Boy, this seems unfair. God's doing something naughty and inappropriate here. Paul responds by saying, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to talk back to God this way? I I think I mentioned this last week, church. I think this is an issue in evangelical theology today. There's a lot of stuff out there that's written in such a way that I think treats your relationship with God as way too familiar. Again, I want to walk carefully here. I do want to be balanced in my theology to some degree, but if I'm going to err, I'm going to err to the side of God's sovereignty rather than to the side of my feelings. All right? Which is just a nicer way of me saying rather than side to your feelings. Okay? In other words, I... This is my main concern is to make sure we exalt the greatness and the glory of God because the Bible far more often exalts the greatness and the glory of God than than man, even my own dignity, though humanity has it as being created in the image of God. We need to understand God's, God's not like my daddy who I can crawl up in his lap. It's just even creepy for me to say stuff like that, all right? It just sounds creepy to say to me. I know that may offend some because maybe you've read a book that says that kind of stuff or maybe you've even thought that kind of thing. It's like the same kind of tendency in evangelical theology to talk about Jesus like he's a boyfriend or a husband. I've got to tell you, church, it just creeps me out. All right, I don't know any other word for it. It just really makes me feel icky, okay? So, and you say, well, Pastor, we've got a lot of odd hang-ups. Well, that's true, all right? I won't deny that. That is, in fact, the case. 
I'm just saying, do not, be, do not assume that you have this right to be overly familiar with God. Has God done great things by His grace to save you? Has He rescued you out of the muck and mire of sin? Has He made you no longer an enemy but now a friend? No longer a child of wrath but a child of God? No longer under darkness but under light? Yes, He's done those things. But do not assume that in God raising you up, He granted you a position of being co-God of the universe. Because he's not done that. The question is good. Who do you think you are? Why do you think you can respond to God this way? Verse 20. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Again, he's just pointing out why does the creature feel like he has the right to assert himself over and against the Creator? Now to make the image, notice what he says. He uses familiar language here. Verse 21, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? This could get really awkward really quick. All right, so I will avoid doing that. Instead, parents, I'll let you have awkward conversations with your children, okay? Put this in perspective. Paul is saying something shocking here. Something, might I even say, graphic. I mean, you you recognize in the first century, we're talking about a time where they didn't have pantries, cabinetry, attics, basements, storage units that they rent out to put all the Christmas gifts they don't want anymore. All right, no, no, so they don't do anything like that, okay? They don't do that kind of thing. They have pots, all different kinds of pots, all different sizes of clay pots that were made for a variety of things. One could be made to hold grain, to store other kinds of foodstuffs. Some may even have a clay pot formed and fashioned so that it could be used to hold family valuables, heirlooms, important elements of family life, maybe even historical information. In some cases, we know like the Dead Sea Scrolls. They made pots to put sacred writings in. But they also didn't have indoor plumbing. And enough said, all right? It's not my fault, okay? Don't blame me. I don't write the book, okay? So, in other words, what he's saying is, what, is, is the clay at some point going to rebel against the potter? Is the clay spinning on the wheel talking to the potter saying, what are you making me for? What are you making me for? And does the potter then feel obligated to tell the clay as it's fashioning, don't worry, don't worry, I'm making you for something great. I'm making you, you're going to hold all the family valuables. And then does he feel obligated to say, well, no, I'm making you for something, it's going to be a hard thing. All right. In other words, does, does he feel obligated to do that? And at some point, does the clay then stop the wheel and say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to be party to this. I'm not going to submit to this. I want to be used for something else. It is a profound image. The clay has no rights. The clay has no authority. The clay has no position of power in the relationship. It has 100% of the submission. And the potter has 100% of the power. It's a humbling image, isn't it? It's it's humbling language. 
wow, we want all of our questions answered. I get it. And again, I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to hold back legit questions you may have of God, okay? It's fine to ask these questions. Quite frankly, I have no, uh, you know, ideas of grandeur here that you're going to leave after hearing these sermons in Romans 9 and go, I understand it all. Wow, that Pastor Scott, he finally solved a 2,000-year-old mystery, all right? So that's not going to happen. However, I do hope and pray that what you do when, you, when we're done with this is you, you recognize the responsibility to say, God is sovereign. I am responsible for my actions. My actions never, never usurp God's sovereignty. And now you've just slammed into a wall, haven't you? Pastor, how do these make sense? I don't have any idea. But it doesn't matter. Why do I believe it? Because God said so. Because He said so. Who am I to reply in an impertinent and sassy way to God the Creator? I'm the creation. God and I don't occupy the same court. I can't hold God accountable. He can hold me accountable. I can't justify God. He can justify me. This relationship doesn't go both of these ways. Now, the language of the potter and the clay is familiar, right? We hear this in the Old Testament. We've got a couple of verses here. Isaiah gives us two of them. In fact, Paul's words are probably drawn directly uh, from the two Isaiah texts. So, Isaiah 29, 16. The, this, the, the background of this, Isaiah is describing people who think they can make their own plans uh, and that God's sovereignty is of no concern. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? Or shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? So Isaiah tells us here, so the person who thinks you can live your own life by your own standards and according to your own way, you, you are turning your nose up at God's sovereignty. And what right does the clay have to do that to the potter? Then he gives us another one, Isaiah 45. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Again, probably, this is probably where Paul in particular is thinking uh, when he adds you know, this particular quotation in Psalm 9. Who, who gets to ask this of, of the potter on his wheel forming the clay? Who gets to decide this? Why, why do I think I have a voice? I don't have a vo- vote here. And then we get to the most famous one, Jeremiah. And this is, uh, again, the one that perhaps you've heard uh, more than the others. Jeremiah is given this image, and it's, it's language about how God can judge, bring judgment on Israel, do with Israel as He sees fit. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Go on to the next slide. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, 
so are you in my hand. Again, this is not an uncommon image. In fact, most of the Jews hearing Romans 9 would be all into this. I mean, they, they would readily identify with this. God owes no other justification for His actions but to say, because I said so. Now, here's what I want to do. We're, we're going to close here in just a minute. So, so we're, we're going to... I know you're looking at your watch thinking, what? God has sovereignly intervened here, right? Okay. <laughs> I'll let you get over the shock. All right. I've never seen a response from you people like that. All right. So, turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 38. Because what I want to do, I want to conclude with this. Because I I think this is a critical point of conclusion. To look and to see this kind of lie. To see, you know, what what should then be our response to this? Job gives us a great, uh, I think, illustration of of what's going on here, of the whole, because I said so, theology. That you and I may have questions of God, but we've got to be careful of the manner in which we ask those questions of God and the expectations we have for answers. And if we, again, rise up against God, shaking our fists, demanding God to give a particular answer, we may find ourselves... uh, uh, worried if God then decides to answer our question. So you know the background of Job, right? Job, Job was the man who suffered greatly, lost his family, lost his livelihood, lost his material possessions. Though his wife did not die in the process, functionally he lost her as well, because after all this tragedy, what is it that she says to Job? Curse God and die. Just get it over with, Job. This is miserable and horrible. So just curse God and die. And then things go from bad to worse because Job's friends show up, right? This group of guys that come around him and they're supposed to encourage him, but instead what do most of them do? They spout really bad theology. They in essence tell Job, you obviously have done something to make God do this to you. Now all throughout, and if you ever read Job, it's a frustrating experience. I think it should be. But to read the, the, the bulk of Job is hard, all right? First two chapters, last few chapters we get in the middle, it's, it's frustrating and dizzying and confusing, and I think that's kind of the sense you should have when you read it. So as, as they try and wrestle with the tragedy that has befallen on Job, Job at various times does raise the question to God, God, why have you done this? And those questions get more intense until it almost comes out as a way of saying, God, I demand an answer from you. Answer why this has happened. Chapter 38. Verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. That has unique application given what we see out there in the water, right? Okay, God answered him out of the equivalent of what is a theological hurricane. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. 
Keep in mind, Job has been through it, right? Brutal series of events. But at some point, there must have been a, there must have been a, a bit of impertinence in his heart because God feels then this obligation to put Job in his place and Job's friends in their place. And what does God do? Rather than answer Job's questions, because God is not accountable to Job or his friends, instead God turns the tables and says, all right, to make sure we have the right theological perspective, I want you to answer some questions of me first. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Ooh, right off the bat. <laughs> Job knows this is not going to be a fun conversation, right? And then God takes two chapters to unleash a litany of questions related to the work of not only creation, but sustaining creation. God brings Job's attention clearly to his own sovereignty and power and might. And to ask Job, so where were you? If you want to think that you and I are on the same level, then surely you were there when I spoke everything into existence. Surely you were there when I said, that's where a mountain goes and that's where an ocean goes. Surely you were there when I decided where the planets and stars would be located. If you really want to think you're in a position to question me, that means you must have been there when I decided how the seasons would flow. This is the way the conversation goes. Notice Job's response in in chapter 40. So, so after two chapters of this, verse 1, Moreover the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Alright, so that's Job's cue. I'm done with my monologue. What say you? Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I've spoken, but I'll not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. God, I don't want to say anything else. After what I just got, I'd rather not say anything else. I'd rather just put my hand over my mouth. Then you notice what happens in verse 6? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Have you ever been in one of these conversations? Somebody, you fussed at somebody, all right? They've done something wrong. You fussed at them and you're you're giving them what for, all right? And they're silent when you get done and so you walk away. But you know what? I'll tell you another thing. All right? This is God saying, Let, I'm not done here. And so what happens now? Two more chapters of the same kind of questioning. To which then Job responds in this way. Chapter 42. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without, without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. 
You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is where God needed Job to be. I I know it sounds harsh, right? I mean, our our impulse is to think, boy, shouldn't, shouldn't Job's heavenly daddy have scooped him up into his lap, right? And loved on his baby boy. I'm telling you, this is stuff I've read, all right? I've heard this stuff. You are looking at me like you're crazy. But this stuff's out there in the evangelical world, all right? Especially in devotional material. And sorry, ladies, I don't know why they pick on you, but a lot of stuff directed at ladies really does, has this kind of language in it, okay? Notice that's Job. You, we would think, yes, this is what he should do. He should love on Job. He should encourage Job. And it's not like the Bible doesn't give encouragement. But notice when God gets done, what does Job see as the appropriate response? I'm nothing, you're everything. It's not just that my ears have heard it, my eyes now see it. In other words, now I understand who I am, and so I repent. Of course, you've got to love the ending. What does God do? I'm not saying He's going to do this for everybody, by the way. But He gives all the stuff back. You know what I think the greatest character is, by the way? This is a whole different story. You know, He gets children again, right? The text never says He gets a new wife. It's the same old wife. (laughs) I mean, nothing nothing says that God killed her, right? That's the only thing you all are going to remember, isn't it? That's it. That's it. I just ruined the sermon. It's, it's, it's It's not like she died and God gave her a newer wife, gave him a newer wife. It's the same woman who said, curse God and die. She gets to... She gets to be a mother again. I find that to be a beautiful story, by the way, of redemption. And again, it's a whole other sermon. So that's not really a point, but I would encourage you to think about Job's wife. She doesn't even give a name. She doesn't even give a name in the thing. To think about Job's wife. But this, again, is clearly the point to which, to which the story of Job is brought to its head. Job had to be brought to a place where he submitted to the sovereignty and authority of God in spite of of his lack of understanding. He does not have a right to the answer to his question in the way that he wants it answered. As creator, God owes me no explanation. Now here's what, here's the, the, I think the response. Of course, I, I think the first would be to anybody here who does not know Christ as Savior. I, I know you hear this and you think, well, Pastor, if you're talking about election and choosing and God has mercy on who He wills and hardens who He wills, why would you extend an invitation? Why would you even encourage people to believe the gospel? Because the Bible tells me to. Because God said so. It's enough reason for me. He's not filled in all the details. By the way, don't assume this. Don't assume that because you can't figure it out or I can't figure out how sovereignty and responsibility all work together, that doesn't mean there's not a resolution. There is a resolution. In the mighty sovereign mind of God, you and I are just way too puny to get it, all right? I don't know any other way to be more offensive, okay? That's, that's it. Our minds just cannot grasp the way these things would be connected. That's why, it's one of the reasons why God hasn't said it. If He did, it would be incomprehensible to us. Instead, the expectation is to trust Him. And the first place you trust is you trust how God works to save. And here's how He does it. If you confess that you're a sinner and you believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, and you ask God to save you based on nothing else but Christ Himself, and you ask God to show His mercy and grace to you, 
Because you believe Jesus paid the price for your sin. The Bible says you can be saved. You can be saved. Do you, do you need Christ as your Savior? I'll be down front as we sing together. As we sing a great song, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. But I'd also make an appeal to anybody here, you're a believer in Christ. I, I would appeal first to some who really struggle with this sincerely. I hope and pray that through this process you can let that go. Trust when God says, because I said so. It is, it is still good and righteous and just. And that God is a God who can be trusted. If maybe you're asking the question with a bit of impertinence, then here's what I encourage you to do. Submit to a sovereign God. Submit to a sovereign God. This is, I think, the response God would have us to have to His Word. Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, then we'll sing and this time we'll be open to you. Father God, would you thank you for gathering us? Would you thank you for this Word? We thank you for your goodness and salvation. We thank you that you can be trusted even when all of our questions are not answered. At least when they're not answered in the way we want. We do accept because you said so. And so we believe. And so, Father, I pray that now your word, by your spirit, would do its work in the heart of your people, forming and fashioning us into the image of Christ, and that you would be glorified through it all. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.